During one of the most devastating periods in Tom Dooley's life, he received something that offered him a glimmer of hope. It was a patent, the third and final patent that Tom has been granted for drugs that he hopes may be a step toward combating the addiction crisis. This is Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare, the show about the people, places, and ideas that are revolutionizing the healthcare industry. I'm Kiersey Goldinia, and you're listening to part two of our show on addiction. So if you haven't listened to part one, you may want to do so before continuing on with this episode. Because part one tells the story of a problem. This crisis, this opiate crisis, it's a big deal. And I know this firsthand. I know this as a grieving dad who spent 10 years of my life keeping my son alive. This year, between 50 and 60,000 people will die in America. You could fill a football stadium, a college football stadium. That's, that's how many people it is. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about solutions. We left Tom Dooley's story in the last episode at its lowest point. Tom had just lost his son to an opioid overdose. And I went downstairs and I found my son slumped over in a chair and I could feel that he was cold. Tom's son Thomas had become addicted to benzodiazepines after being diagnosed with acute anxiety and OCD as an adolescent. By the time he was an adult, his benzo addiction had spiraled into opioid abuse. But while his son was in the throes of his addiction, Tom, a biologist by trade, began talking to other parents whose children had struggled with addiction and reflecting on what could be done differently to mitigate the risk that so many people face when they take benzodiazepines. And what he realized was that there were no prescription drugs that could treat the symptoms of anxiety acutely that didn't have a risk of addiction. So Tom decided to try and develop them himself, and he created Panax. I've had all this history of watching my son progress from benzodiazepines, which were horrible in his case, to then he shifts over to opiates and ultimately has multiple overdoses and dies from it. So I created Panax, patented it. We now have three recently issued U.S. patents on a new invention that that uh, is designed to be a fast-acting anxiety medication. By fast-acting, I mean that it has an effect on your body in less than an hour and preferably less than 30 minutes. Uh, it treats the symptoms of anxiety and most, if not all, the symptoms of anxiety. And, but it's meant to be as a PRN medicine. It's You take it on a bad day. It's something you have in your pocket or your purse you carry with you. And then uh, when you have a bad day, you take it. And you've got a social anxiety disorder and you don't want to go to a Christmas party or, or to a Hanukkah party. Panax isn't a single drug. It's a class of drugs that combines beta blockers and anti-muscarinic agents, two types of drugs that are already commonly used and well understood. I was aware of historic information about beta blockers, and beta blockers are very common medicines used for hypertension. They block the effects of adrenaline, and so adrenaline causes your heart to race, giving you the perception of a racing heart in anxiety. So the beta blocker addresses that. It, it blocks the effects of adrenaline and allows your heart to slow down, helps you calm down there. The other medicine that I married to it, which is also known to be safe, are, are drugs that are called anti-muscarinics. Uh, they're commonly used for motion sickness um, and for the treatment of nausea and vomiting, and there's a whole group of those drugs as well. But most notably, uh, we're working with scopolamine, which is the most potent version of those 
um, anti-emetic, anti-muscarinic drugs. So if you marry that, you then pick up the other symptoms of acute anxiety, and those symptoms would be anxiousness, fear, avoidance, nausea, vomiting, things of like that, sweating. So if you marry these two active ingredients together into a single drug, which Panax represents, that combination of those two well-known, well-studied historic medicines should cover the panoply of uh, symptoms in acute anxiety. What's your long-term goal for Panax? In 20 years, do you hope that it will have replaced benzodiazepines? I mean, I'm not saying that Panax needs to entirely replace benzodiazepines. It doesn't. There's a place for them. But limit their use to uh, those kinds of medical needs where they, they help. One, one example of which was people who are experiencing seizures in an in a acute care environment where the doctor is already fully con- conversant of, I really need to help this patient and I got to calm them down quick. Here we are in the ER and we've got to take care of it. And they already know that they can give them clonopin or Xanax. They already know it. So, so in that particular case, I'm not, I'm not condemning benzodiazepines. All I'm saying is it's about time that somebody came up with something that can, com- that can come alongside of that as an alternative with, the, with what I believe is the hope and the anticipation of a better safety profile. That's the goal. The creation of Panax and, and the patents being granted all happened at such a, an emotional time in your life. How did you process all of that? Was it comforting at all to know that what you were doing could potentially prevent others from facing the same addiction that Thomas suffered from? It's, it's some degree of satisfaction, some, but it's never going to replace my son. And, you know, if you lose a child to a drug overdose, their death is a binary final thing for them. It's not for you. As the survivor, you have to deal with it every single day. And I, right now, we're still in a phase where we have pictures, we have an urn with ashes sitting on our mantle in our home of our deceased son, Thomas. We're still dealing with, with the pain of that. And I just feel that what I'm doing is I just feel, please, please, people, would you please listen? Would you avoid foolish friends? Would you get out of that drug culture? And those of us who are competent professionally, would we lock arms with as many possibilities for remedy that we can bring to the table? Who wants this assignment? I don't want this. You know, I never, I never wanted this. I, I didn't want this. You know, I worked on other drugs and other biomedical things. I had other inventions and stuff. I would have much rather been working on something else. I want, I just want to alleviate some of the pain and suffering. That's why I'm motivated to do what I'm doing. And, and hey, I'm, I feel like any day now we're going to hit our breakthrough and things are going to look real good for the business. I, I feel that. I think we're real close to it. Fighting the opioid crisis takes multiple steps. People like Tom are taking on the preventative step to reduce the number of prescription users who find themselves addicted to their medications. But what can be done to better treat the overwhelming number of people who are already dealing with addiction? To start, we can be careful when using one drug to treat dependency on another drug, a practice that, as Freud demonstrated, can be problematic if not done carefully. 
Freud did a series of experiments early in his career, this is before psychoanalysis, where he systematically administered cocaine intravenously as a treatment for morphine dependency. And within months, it was pretty clear cocaine was not an effective treatment for morphine dependency. This is Dr. David Sack, the chief medical officer of Elements Behavioral Health, a network of addiction treatment centers. The search for this sort of kinder, gentler, safer form of morphine resulted in a medication being introduced in Europe and worldwide as a treatment based on very poor science. And although it was very clear after a short period of time that that treatment was also not effective, it continued to be marketed for for almost 20 years for the treatment of morphine dependency. And that drug was heroin. When you have scientists coming up with cocaine and heroin as a treatment, I mean, have we learned from those mistakes? It's, It's not hard to understand the skepticism. So the answer is... We should worry, and we should be cautious, and we should look at at that as a potential risk, but we also have to look at it in the context of the potential harms. That is, how effective are the other treatments that we're offering them? And and how much risk is there to, to a specific individual if they relapse, and how likely is that relapse? So I think we can't just say there's risk and then, and then ignore all the other issues. So from a clinical perspective, what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the healthcare industry when it comes to better treating addicts and reducing the number of people who are overdosing and who aren't able to recover? Our treatments today, although better than they were, you know, 25, 35 years ago, um, leave a lot of room for improvement. So even the drugs that have had the most success um, only help a fraction of the people with the problem. So many people, especially with opioid problems, are going to go through multiple treatments in multiple different settings, and they will, over time, if they don't overdose and die, become experts in what treatment is most helpful for them. So I think the first thing is that that we should respect our patients' preferences. That is, we should be prepared to educate them, but we need to also understand that if, if there are treatments that may be reasonably comparable then we should be willing to respect and endorse and encourage, you know, our patients' preferences within that range. You know, one of the problems with addiction medicine is that most of the studies that are done are done on an outpatient basis. So the amount of new and really rigorous scientific information about, for instance, residential treatment versus uh, drug therapy is, is very lacking. Um, nevertheless, there was a large study uh, conducted in Australia and where they did follow-ups over a 10-year period. So there's a lot of data at one year and at three years and at seven years and at 10 years um, does help to inform our opinion about what treatments kind of work and, and what treatments don't work. So I think that the first thing that's really clear is that people who go into treatment to get detoxed by itself and don't follow up with other treatment, whether it's medicine or residential treatment, have very poor outcomes. And in the Australian ATOS trial, ATOS, um, their outcomes were no better than heroin addicts who were just living on the street who got no treatment. So, so detox is not a treatment. So if we're going to detox people from opiates and not give them other treatment, then we probably are wasting time and money and we're putting them at risk uh, for an overdose. 
I think that the second thing um, is that although the data is generally less compelling because there are very few studies that have been done, that um, in the Australian study in the first year, people who had residential treatment, and in Australia, residential treatment was longer term than some of the treatment that we look at here, um, their outcomes at one year were very comparable with methadone. And I think that that's important because there is a tendency to be very dismissive, but I think it's, it's also important to realize that this was not just 30 days and you're done. But when it comes to treating addiction, the stigma of being an addict, that it's their own fault for not being able to get clean, or that not being able to stop using is some kind of moral failure, can also play a role in a patient's ability to recover. So I think that the biggest problem for people with drug use disorders is the tendency for other people to see them as self-inflicted. That is, that that person is seen as wanting to get high and not wanting to work and not wanting to be responsible. And because they're irresponsible and neglectful and, and insensitive, that's why they're addicted. And, and again, this tendency to see this as a self-inflicted um, wound makes people much less willing to help and to, to want to make treatments available. As the public health impact of the opioid industry has become more apparent, it's drawn a striking resemblance to an industry that came under fire for its public health effects a few decades ago, the tobacco industry. In the 50s and 60s, tobacco was everywhere, fueled by ads that glorified smoking and disregarded its potential health impacts. But by the 1990s, its effects could no longer be ignored. Lung cancer rates had risen to over 15 times what they had been 70 years prior. And with hundreds of studies showing a link between smoking and lung diseases, it was time to take action. Individual plaintiffs had filed suits against the tobacco industry for negligent manufacturing and marketing. But it wasn't until 1994 when attorneys general started filing suits against the tobacco industry on behalf of their states that things really started to change. The states argued that the products manufactured by the tobacco industry had led to health problems, which in turn created a significant cost to states' public health systems. This resulted in several of the major cigarette manufacturers entering into a master settlement agreement with 46 states in 1998. In addition to requiring cigarette manufacturers to pay for the health impacts of their products, it also required that they change their advertising practices and be more transparent with their products. Now, this isn't to say that legal action was solely responsible for the drop in the national smoking rate, but it certainly shaped the relationship that society has with tobacco. Today, the number of adults who smoke is just over 15%, compared to the over 42% of smokers in the 1960s. So this begs the question, could the widespread opioid abuse be curbed by legal action against opioid makers? Joe Rice, the co-founder of Motley Rice Law Firm in South Carolina, provided outside counsel to dozens of states during the tobacco litigation and was a lead negotiator in the master settlement agreement. Now he's prepared to take on opioid makers. So who better to talk to than Mr. Rice himself? 
back in the 90s, right around the peak of the anti-smoking campaigns. That's when I was born. And I remember seeing anti-tobacco commercials and posters and watching videos in school that warned about the dangers of smoking. But can you explain what the scope of the issue was like back then and how it led to the litigation? Well, your introduction to your question just really made me feel old. <laughs> when we were dealing with tobacco, <clears throat> we, um, we were dealing with an industry that had been part of our culture um, for 40 years. An industry that was a very tight-knit group that started business before there was a lot of antitrust and a lot of regulatory conduct. And they set out to sell a legal product, but it was our allegations that they manipulated the product in such a way as to make it addictive so that people would buy more of it. And they designed it and appealed to the youngest people possible to try to get them addicted because if they could get them addicted when they were 10, 11, and 12 years old, then they had a customer for life. And of course, everyone that was not involved in the tobacco industry was convinced that tobacco caused serious lung disease and was the principal cause of lung cancer in this country. So we had what we thought was the selling of a drug by way of deceptive practices and marketing practices that targeted a vulnerable population um, inappropriately and that they were unjustly enriched by the conduct and therefore they should forfeit the profits that they had made. So that's what we were dealing with and what we were trying to address is to stop the, the deceptive marketing, stop the the prying on vulnerable um, people, in that case, youth, and to educate the public about the real hazards and the real problems. Do you think that was ultimately achieved? Just look at the rate of lung cancer and the, and the amount of, or the volume of children that smoke now. Look at your everyday experience, and you properly pointed out you don't remember because you were not born in the 60s and the 70s when cigarettes were on every table at every restaurant and every time you got on an airplane people were smoking cigarettes and whether you were smoking or not you were inhaling that smoke that's not a, a part of your life but anyone that was living in the 50s and the 60s they'll tell you it's been a drastic difference I think that happened because there were a group of public servants that saw what cigarettes were doing to our society, saw what they were doing to children, and decided it was time for them to do something about it. I was fortunate enough to represent over 20 of the states, and I was extremely fortunate to be selected to be the negotiator for those states in the Master Settlement Agreement. And I sat across the table for over a year with lawyers for the tobacco industry. And in those negotiations, I think the corporations realized it was time for them to make some changes in the way they did business, if they were going to stay in business. And I think the litigation was what brought that about. 
How would you compare the situation with tobacco in the 90s to the opioid crisis that we have today? Well, the allegations that are being made against the manufacturers of the opioid drugs is that they are using deceptive marketing practices and that they are misleading the public and in this case, the medical profession about the true effect of the drug for long-term use and its addictive qualities. Um, so there, there's a parallel as to the conduct being related to deceptive marketing allegations and um, preying on vulnerable people again, people that are in severe pain that will basically do anything to try to have that pain relieved. The attorneys general of 41 states, in addition to numerous cities and counties, have decided to investigate the role of opioid makers and distributors in opiate addiction and overdose fatalities. And Motley Rice is representing a number of them. Do you think the fact that there is an illegal component to opioid use will make it harder for legal action to have the same tangible effect on the opioid crisis that it had on tobacco use? Well, this this problem has got to be addressed at multiple levels. Uh, we have to treat those that have current substance abuse, and we have to prevent future substance abuse. We've got to limit the use of opioids. We're not going to eliminate the use of opioids. And if they were being used as they were intended and, and as they were legally approved in some cases, they would only be prescribed for a short period of time to treat pain. That's what the drug was intended for. Are there any reasons states might have reservations about pursuing this litigation? Political. They will be targeted by the Koch brothers. They'll be targeted by Chamber of Commerce. They'll be accused of being liberal. There'll be political money put against them uh, in future campaigns. But I'm hopeful that we'll have more public servants stand up, seek action, seek change, and that we'll have a receptive audience in the pharmaceutical world, that are the, man, the opioid pharmaceutical world, that says, okay, maybe we do need to change the way we do things. Maybe we do need to be more cautious, more conscious. Maybe we do have to have different educational plans. And maybe we should realize that when we're selling a million pills in a community of 10,000 people, that there's a problem. This problem will not be solved until you solve it from an education, from an economic, and from a governance role all the way through the distribution chain, from the manufacturer to the distributor to the pharmacies and to the doctors. Fighting the addiction crisis isn't easy. It takes action from numerous people across numerous industries. But thankfully, there are people willing to fight so that someday this crisis can be a thing of the past. Sex, Drugs, and Healthcare is produced by me and sponsored by FundRx, an early-stage venture capital firm based in New York City. If you're a healthcare or life sciences entrepreneur looking for advice or funding, you can find more information at fundrx.com. 
For more information about addiction, you can find sources mentioned in this episode in the episode description. We'll see you next time for more sex, drugs, and healthcare.